Welcome to EdTech Adventures. Join us as we explore the role of technology, STEM, and creative play in education. With expert guests, we'll discover how learning is always an adventure. What's social engineering? What are bad actors? There are so many terms around data privacy that may be difficult to explain to students. However, Jennifer Langdon's team has found a way to do so through games and authentic conversations. Today, we'll learn with Jen about how to introduce this concept of data privacy to students. Jen Langdon is a former six-year middle school science teacher with a master's in arts in curriculum and educational technology. While listening to a podcast, actually, she heard about cybersecurity and decided to pursue an associate degree in information assurance. Now she works for the National Cryptologic Foundation and hosts the Hashtag CyberChats podcast to spread data and cyber career awareness to youth. Thanks so much for joining our podcast, Jen. I'm so excited to be here, Charlotte. Let's go. I know, I'm excited too. <laughs> All right, let's start at the beginning of your journey. Could you describe a memorable education experience that you've had as a student? Yeah, as a ninth grader in high school, I thought I was gonna work with animals. I ended up getting a degree in biology, you know, and fast forward in the future. But at that time I was in the classroom, I was ready to absorb everything. I was ready for dissections. I was ready for the nitty gritty details. And during the first week of class, my teacher brought out this giant ring and put it in the middle of the room in front of the projector and shined a light through this little ring and clicked a button and little picture slides moved one by one as he talked. And I was like, this is not 21st century education. Like this is the early 2000s. And I was like, this is not okay. So for, you know, full disclosure, he was obviously, you know, in his 60s, if not more. And years later, the school had turned 50 years old and there was like a 50 year old celebration. And he was in the yearbook, like when the school opened, he had been teaching there. So yeah, that was my most memorable moment. Cause from that moment, actually, that's kind of like, why I wanted to be a teacher because I saw that and I was like, I can do better than this. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting because I ask this question in every podcast and usually it's like one of two types of experiences. One's like, oh my gosh, I had this amazing experience with a teacher. I was so inspired. And the other half is like you, where you go through an experience as a student is like, wait, I feel like I can improve this experience. Utterly disappointed. Disappointment. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. So from there I had set out to be like, how can I make this better? You know, mm. for, for the student who was me, who wanted to go into science, like, what is it that would make it great? And that's always kind of been my frame of reference. Anytime I go in the classroom, like what is going to really help steer them to a really great career that they love or could be passionate about if they're sitting in my room right now? Agreed. I mean, it's such a pivotal moment. So whether or not you give a positive or a negative experience can literally turn someone away like you from yes. like working with animals, which I'm sure <laughs> the education space, we're so grateful that you headed this direction, but can you share? So you had that pivotal moment. How did you go from there to becoming a teacher? What was your path? It's so funny. So I was in school, you know, in college, I was pursuing biology. I was pre-med for a while. And the summer of my sophomore year, my dad, he had worked with somebody who had a veterinarian. I was like, can I just go and like observe what it's like to have that career? You know, as a high schooler, you don't get to career explore. 
And I had done research, you know, in college, like how much does it cost to become a veterinary doc? What are the expenses? You start getting to the details. You're like, oh shoot, I should probably know a little bit more. So I went into this veterinary office and I was extremely allergic to cats. Oh no. Allergy medication did not work. So I needed to pick a different path. And naturally I thought, well, I love teaching. I'm passionate about educating others. There's many times where I like tutored classmates on organic chemistry. It's a really difficult topic, by the way. Yes. That's where I got stuck. I did not feel qualified, (laughs) (laughs) but I realized it was a passion and, you know, Harking back to that first memorable experience in the classroom, I still had that drive to be like, I can give a meaningful experience. I can at least be better than that guy. You know what I mean? Got it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I taught for many years. I'm assuming you definitely integrated technology into the learning experiences of your students. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So towards the end, every year I taught a different grade and the curriculum changed. You know, in middle school, it's integrated. So like, There's a couple topics here. You do rocks, you do space science. You know, it's all different. It may be the same topic, but it changes. So around like my fifth to sixth years when I started getting into the groove and being like, okay, let's throw in the technology. What can we do? So we did do some like digital story projects. And with that, you know, the cyber issues started to come in and the network issues, which was our school network couldn't handle the students. And I had them in pairs. 12 computers saving a video project to the shared drive. They couldn't handle it. And I was like, oh my God, like, this is not okay. What are we going to do? I've really tried really hard. And I was the only teacher there, like in the school building, doing that type of stuff. I was the youngest teacher. A lot of the older teachers, you know, they didn't have that additional training of a master's degree and a lot of private schools, they don't pay for that additional schooling. So it made a lot of sense. Yeah, it couldn't handle some of those experiences. Or I tried to get them to do Prezi and like try different presentation software and they didn't have their own accounts, their own email accounts. So I was making a couple different email accounts and then had to like find a way to save the passwords. And then it got really complicated at one point, Charlotte. It sounds really frustrating for sure, especially for someone who was like, hey, I want to evolve this beyond an overhead projector. Yes. And you're exploring these tools and you keep running into these limitations. It was funny because at the end, they brought in this person to come in and consult with their school about incorporating technology. And I was given a ton of feedback. I'm like, we should be a Google school. Like, what are we doing? Keep in mind, this is like 2014, 2015, 2016. Turns out they became a Google school. So during the pandemic, they were able to, you know, have their students work virtually. And I'm just sitting back here like, man, like if only, (laughs) if only I had that, like the capabilities, the things I could have done. Right. Yeah. I I know the pandemic did like push a lot of schools into using tech and now going back, they sort of are folding it still into their curriculum because they've seen the benefits of it. Now you're saying you were trying this technology thing in the school but then became fascinated with cybersecurity through a podcast. Could you go into more detail about that? Yeah. So I quit teaching because I wanted to have a family and I knew that wouldn't have been possible, you know, with the private school sort of salary and my family situation. So I'm at home and I'm like, what else can I do? You know, I, I don't have any other skills. I just know about biology and I can present, you know, and I, I know all about curriculum. 
obviously, and educational technology, but what does that get me? So I was like, oh, I should learn about economics. So that was my New Year's resolution. And I just listened to podcasts about economics. And one day they were talking about the cyber incident and the woman who ended up clicking the malicious link was talking on the podcast about how she was the one that caused this like sort of hacking incident where some hacker was able to wire transfer money out of their corporation to another because of her. And I was just fascinated with how they were able to backtrack, figure out it was this person. It seemed sleuthy. And I've always been into that sort of like mystery solving stuff. So I was immediately captivated. And I thought, you know what? I bet you they need a lot of people to go in this sort of career field. <laughs> they could use somebody like me helping to train people. I would be ideal for this. So I thought, hey, why not? Let's see what's out there. So I went for an associates in cyber. Awesome. Information assurance. They call it all sorts of different things. Yeah, it feels like a relatively new space or career. I know a lot of people aren't even aware that this is potentially a career path that they can take. So that's so exciting that you found it via podcast. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so like now you work at the National Cryptologic Foundation. Can you sort of highlight what you do there? Yeah. So actually it's really funny when I finished my degree, I saw this opportunity to create a cybersecurity computer game for middle school kids. And I thought, oh my God, this is my dream to like make actual software to be implemented in a classroom. So I emailed immediately and was like, if I don't get picked, I at least want to be a fly on the wall for this project and ended up leading it at first, the first game that we made. And it's so funny because a lot of those initial feelings I got from the podcast were some things that ended up being in the game, like the sort of mystery aspect, there's something you need to solve that was incorporated. And the developers kind of took the angle of like, oh, you know, Scooby-Doo mystery machine sort of thing. So we kind of like worked that into the game. So it was really interesting just seeing how all our experiences put together help make these educational tools. Right. I love the storytelling aspect because again, it gets into that immersive feel where they're going, oh my gosh, now I can really see myself in this situation. Like that was one of the feedback we had from the play yeah. tests. So we did play testing last week at a school, which was really fun. But one of the kids was like, oh, is that me? And I was like, this is the exact feeling that we were going for with our new game is it takes place in a middle school. So we were like, we need to have like actual kids that look like kids in here. So it's been really, really fun working on the project. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Now, before we delve even deeper into this game today, we want to talk about data privacy. And I know that's deeply tied into what is being taught in this game. So what does data privacy mean to you? Well, data privacy feels like a full-time job sometimes. You know what I mean? I work on a podcast as well, the Cyber Chats podcast for my work. And you know, you have to really consider what you put out there about yourself. So on LinkedIn, you know, I've looked over that a number of times to be like, okay, what can somebody gain from this? And what should an employer gain from this versus what somebody looking at it should gain? You know, what's an appropriate amount of information. What other social media stuff do I have out there? So that's one aspect of it, right? Is what am I putting out there? What's the attack surface might be like a cybersecurity term. You know what I mean? Like what is out there that somebody could grab 
that they could see on the surface, right? Oh, I've never heard of that term attack surface. So you're trying to make that surface as small as possible. Is that exactly? Yeah. 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 So then thinking about, you know, educating students about privacy, like, you know, it gives it a different meaning, different stakes, if you know what I mean. Because I feel like students don't take what you're saying as seriously, especially like, you know, from parents or teachers, but when they hear it from somebody else, they might also take it differently. So just being really cognizant of like what I'm communicating and making sure it's meaningful to them, you know, that's also really important and a different aspect of my work for sure. Yeah. I can imagine if you went way too academic, it might feel really overwhelming, especially for the younger kids. Now at the end of the day though, why should kids care about data privacy? You're talking about LinkedIn, like grown up concerns. Yes. (laughs) There's some people I talk with, they're like, oh, well, you know, kids will care about their healthcare. And I'm like, Kids don't have healthcare plans. Kids don't have insurance. I even remember sitting in for my first teaching job. You know, this is like during the recession and I was happy to have a job. I did not care what the retirement plan was. Do you know what I mean? I was not paying attention, but do kids care about their personal safety? Yes. To a degree they do. Do parents care? Absolutely. So, I mean, in many ways, data privacy and data care is like, stranger danger, right? At some point you teach your kids like, Hey, we don't talk about that outside the home. We don't share where we live out in public. Like we don't shout all this information about ourselves all the time. And I had to start thinking about that, you know, when my kids started talking and I'm like, Oh my God, what are they saying in school? Like, (laughs) what are they doing? Like, we need to start having these conversations, you know? And I came to realize, I'm like, Oh my gosh, like this is the same thing as cybersecurity and data privacy. Like that's the same concept. We're trying to keep everybody safe, right? So what you share out loud, if you're putting it on the internet, that's the same thing as shouting it in a movie theater, essentially, you know? Right. I get you. And I mean, it's so funny you said that because I have a toddler, she's almost four and she's at the point where she's sort of starting to know where we live our phone numbers. And like you said, we'll just shout it out and share it with the world. She's proud that she can recite it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I think (laughs) that's the thing that we sort of lose in context, because I feel like a lot of the cyber security content, the data privacy content, it's like talking about things like your social security number or your bank account number. None of that seems relevant to a kid. Right. So, so when it comes to younger kids, what are the most relevant concepts that kids should learn in regards to data privacy? Obviously not a bank account number. Oh yeah. No, no, no. (laughs) Well, there's lots, I feel like they have lots at stake. Younger and younger kids are getting their own personal devices. First of all, parents do allow them still to be on social media, even though technically they shouldn't really be allowed to be on there, but you know, As a former teacher, I know that all this stuff is happening, right? Because I've seen it. But there's also gaming and I've definitely let my kids play games and I've let them play online. And one time I saw my son, it was putting in his last name. I thought, no, 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 no. We don't share our last name. I was like, that's even why we only have part of our first name in there. And he even took it upon himself to just change it all entirely. I didn't even tell him to remove the first part, the rest of his name. He just has it as one letter now. But like, they're old enough. And, you know, for reference, my kids are under 10. They can understand that concept, you know, and one of them is definitely under six. Like, they get it. Wow. And I think if we push them to 
they will understand what's at stake. Like, okay, this is something I don't share in public, right? I don't want somebody to know my name or be able to look up my name because everything's also available on the internet, you know? Right. Yeah. I I hear you. And it's so interesting how pervasive it can be because I never even thought about the username you pick in a game. I think most parents don't even think about that until you literally saw your kid doing that. Now we've talked about these terms, social engineering, bad actors, How can that sort of show up in something as innocuous as a kid's game or a social media account? Because I know, I agree, I've seen young kids like 12, 13 having social media accounts. How can these things show up in that experience when it comes to social engineering? You know, we had a, he said he's a social media spy, but on our first episode for Cyber Chats, we had this guy, he's an OSINT expert, which is open source, you know, intelligence information. And his name is Elliot Jardines. And he talked a lot about like TikTok and like the quizzes that people upload on Facebook that have, you know, your favorite ice cream or your favorite this and that. And like, what's your middle name? And who's your best friend? Like there's so much information and those types of quizzes or even the pictures you upload. There's so much about you. There's so much that you share. And all of that can be used not only to profile you, but to figure out how to fish you to how to get more information, how to log into your account, how to take your pictures, how to impersonate you, right? There's so many different aspects and ways that they can attack you. I know I have been fished and socially engineered. One time I clicked on an email and it was just a quick message like, Hey, do you know this kid? And I don't know how many times as a teacher, you've gotten that sort of email like, oh, hey, do you know this person? Or did you see this kid in the hallway? Or, you know, things like that. And you're like, oh, I didn't even think anything of it. But as soon as I clicked and I didn't see anything related, I was like, oh, snap, I got fished. <laughs> and the funny part is I was still learning about like how all that worked. So there is this open source So there's open source information gathering, right? You gather all this information, but there's also open source tools in cybersecurity. And one of them is called Metasploit. And with this tool, you can make fake websites. The program does it. You just enter in the command. You create the fake website. You can model it off of ones it already has in the program. It makes a link. You can decide what the link says. You can send it to people. And when they click, you can see what information they enter, because you can create fields where they enter information that you want. Once you see how it's done, it's so clear how easy you can be fooled into giving more information. Somebody could steal your account, which may not seem like a big deal if you're a kid, but it depends what account it is. If they're stealing your gaming account, there are tons of reports of kids who've had their games locked and have had items stolen. And that may be you know, not that important to adult, but it's definitely important to a kid if they're investing hours of their life into it. And after that's done, the feeling you have, like the feeling that I had after being fish was, oh my God, what information did I give? What do they have? Are they still able to track my IP address? What's the next step I need to do? There were so many questions and I felt violated. And what we really need is for our kids if something happens, they also need to feel empowered on what to do next, like how to reset your device, what definitely not to share. You know, there are so many different things. And I feel like recognizing with social engineering that people are so willing to make connections 
and be vulnerable that you can easily be engineered into giving away information. Right. And these bad actors will pretend to be your best friend. They'll pretend to be someone you know. And I think the term engineering really helps encapsulate that this is truly manipulative. Like you said, it's really planned. They're really pulling at your heartstrings. And those are all things kids haven't learned yet. And I hear on the violation because the other thing is we've talked to people who've been hacked and there's a shame around it too. And they're afraid to share that experience. And when you're afraid to share that experience, then other people aren't educated about the situation too, right? Yeah. And and after that happened, so the person, I almost felt like a spearfish. I'm not entirely sure who it was, but they impersonated somebody that I knew through another role that I had. And I, you know, obviously didn't second guess it, but I emailed the actual person. I was like, Hey, somebody is impersonating you just so you know. And I was able to find your email easily on this website. And I suggest you remove it. And Mm. so like, there are next steps that you can take. There are even ways that you can write out your email. So it's, what's it called? I'm not good with all of the vocabulary of cybersecurity, but there is one command. I know it's called cool. And you can just pull whatever information you want off of a web page. Like it'll organize email addresses. You just tell it what you want and it will organize it for you. Yeah. That's pretty scary. Yeah. Okay. So now we're talking about all these complex terms. We're talking about all of these like tricks that bad actors and social engineers can do. How do you teach this to a kid? What are the best ways to teach it to them? Because it sounds overwhelming. It sounds really complicated. What has worked for you? I honestly think our game has been really, really helpful for some kids. So we also have a booklet and the game is based off of our Outsmart Cyber Threats booklet. But sometimes, you know, we have students who may not be able to be engaged with that type of booklet, right? During the pandemic, a lot of kids lost years of reading levels, right? And having a real world scenario being placed as a person in a game with people that you need to help is a way where kids feel vested and they're learning without even knowing it. So our games have been really helpful for teaching some basic concepts about phishing and not leaving your password out because those concepts are in the game, but you see the consequence of what happens. Like somebody, you know, oh, was hacked using that account because they left it out there. And in the new game, you get to play as the hacker and you get to see those motivations of, I'm going to do this with your information and I'm going to get them to click on this link. And seeing that perspective is so helpful because you can't always see it from the, you know, the side of the good guy, right? You need to understand to a degree what the villain or bad actor is thinking because understanding those motivations helps you understand what you can do to protect yourself and how to keep your data private so you don't get attacked, right? Low attack surface. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No attack surface back again. And I love this idea of flipping the script and having them explore a bad actor's motives because their tactics change all the time. Like I now get texts all the time about vet appointments, speaking of vet, right? And I fell for it one time because I'm a good Samaritan. So I'm like, hey, I think you have the wrong number. And that slowly, very creepily, 
led into them trying to arrange a coffee date with me or something like that. I'm like, what is happening? And I had to look it up and it was a new type of social engineering. That's crazy. Yeah. Technique. And so because I responded all of a sudden I'm getting floods of texts because they marked me as, aha, she could fall for it. She replies. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's hard to just say, Hey, watch out for these things because that list of things to watch out for is just constantly changing. Yeah. So it sounds like just understanding the bad actors motives can help you anticipate maybe like what the next to a degree. Yeah. And feeling like, Oh my gosh, I helped solve this person's problem in the game, like you're Amanita white hat and you're trying to solve all these issues that occur. That's also empowering to them, but they get to also see and, you know, feel how the victims feel. So like one puzzle in our game, this kid, he didn't back up his information in the cloud. So he lost all his homework and all his stuff because he didn't do all these things. And the ransomware attacked his computer. And now everybody knows his school crush is Kelly. Like, you know, there's so many consequences going on with this poor kid. You're like, oh man, I feel for this, this, (laughs) this poor schlep. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah. The devil in the details, right? Because that really brings that character to life that, oh my gosh, he has a crush named Kelly. And now the school knows about him. And you mentioned White Hat, but that really reminds me that the fact that you said you host a podcast series where actually students in the cyber community share their expertise. What has that been like? And do you mind also helping us define what a white hat is just for people who aren't aware? Yeah, it's not really a hat per se, but actually in our computer game, it's really funny. You can grab the hat off the table somewhere in the game and put it on your character's head. So nice. We did make it literal. But white hat hackers are people that are hacking for good. There's lots of examples out there of white hat hackers. I listened to another podcast called Darknet Diaries, which is a really, really popular one in the cyber community. And there's one time where they were hacking a prominent U.S. official's password and they were agents from another country and they notified, you know, the U.S. consulate like, Hey, we know this person's password. Please secure it. This is how we figured it out. This is how we found all the information. You know, they detail it out. This is what we're doing. You know, we're with this company. It's hacking in order to educate, right? A company or individual. It's not hacking to be malicious, which is what a black hat hacker would do. But yeah, having the kids on the podcast share their experiences has been really cool. One girl we're going to have on she's with girls who hack and she has actually created like a program to secure voting. And so she's brought it to DEF CON conferences and like had kids and other professionals there try to hack it and change the vote count. And they haven't like, these are really cool, legit kids. And the recent episodes we've had a couple other girls. It's amazing how many girls have come out and been like, yeah, we definitely want to represent, like we want to be on this podcast. It's been really empowering to see that because first I was really scared that we wouldn't be able to have that representation, but I'm really like, I guess the word is re-energized by the youth that I interview because it really gives me hope for the next generation. I mean, there were some days while teaching, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I have hope. I, you know, but interviewing these kids, I was like, wow, like I feel fulfilled. Like I feel ready to go out and do something. You know, I want to make sure that their dreams of working in cyber are fulfilled and I want to see them, you know, do great things. 
But yeah, I love that. I think it really helps change what we think of as a hacker with a podcast like yours, because you know, those movies, you always see a hacker. It's always like a middle-aged or late twenties person, usually a guy who's like in a den and just hacking away. But it's like so much more than that. I love the stories of the girls who hack who do that for good i see the benefits of learning this skill set oh there's another girl we interviewed she's going to be on episode two and she hacked a wi-fi router and there's a capture the flag competition at this conference we went to and she talks about you know how she hacked it and how it really helped her because it's the first time like she's been able to hack something in real life a lot of these students when they're you know, hacking and learning these tools, they're on virtual machines on a computer. So it looks like a computer, but it's maybe not on your computer. It's somewhere else. You know, it's AWS in the cloud. This was the time she had something physically in the same room. She was using her physical computer to access in real life. So she talks about how like meaningful that experience was and how we need to have more of these hands-on sort of experiences for kids. Right. It's hard to understand the reality of something until you see it Yes, live and in person, right? (laughs) Yeah. That's great. That's so exciting. Like you said, you're re-energized. You're really inspired by this new generation of hackers. So looking at that, looking at your experience with this podcast series and what you've done with the game, how could data privacy and this ever-expanding cyber community impact the future of ed tech? Like in the next couple years, in the next 10 years, what do you think is going to happen? Okay. So I see this as sort of like a theoretical question, right? Right. (laughs) There's a lot of talk right now on speculation about AI as well. Right. And there is also a lot of talk, you know, laws about data privacy, including what social media platforms can do. Facebook has, let's say the past five years over and over again, it's Facebook and data privacy, just Google Facebook and data privacy. (laughs) I mean, it's, pages and pages and pages of articles that are different. But I think AI is a big piece that could be in educational technology. It's definitely been at the forefront, I think, for a lot of people right now with chat GPT that's come out because they're like, oh my gosh, everybody can, you know, find the answers, have it create papers for them. And it's really got people to think more about like, what is educational technology? How do we teach kids to work with AI or should we, you know, there's also ethical conversations and how I feel about it is if we're not securing data privacy correctly, you know what I mean? How can we be sure that there will be rules and laws around AI that are created? You know, there's a lot in cybersecurity space right now that is still not regulated because people still don't understand it or don't understand the consequences. And there's another technology right now that's doing the same thing. Part of me is almost like, man, we should probably get the cyber stuff under control before we start moving along. Technology is changing so quickly. And I do think concepts in cyber have a huge, huge role in that. 
Right. It makes me realize like individuals in government, this is a full circle moment back to your teacher who was in the sixties and using oh, yeah. the overhead projector. Oh, it God. reminds me of who was it, who was explaining the internet to government officials so they could just wrap their minds around the internet. Like how can they be the ones in charge of making regulations to protect us if they don't even know what the internet is right. and we're, we're already at AI, right? I think that's the point. I think the point is that companies are the ones that are able to make a lot of these rules and laws. You know, right now there's a law that exists. And I know there's been conversation about it, about, you know, why after age 13, kids are considered knowledgeable enough to give their information without their parents' permission. Why at age 14 are they considered adults on the internet? Hmm. It could be because then social media platforms are allowed to have them as users as age 14. That doesn't sound right. Right. Cause you can't drive a car till you're 16 and you can't drink alcohol till you're 21. Where did the number 14 come from? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's part of that. You know, it's like, Hmm, I, I definitely think I know where this came from. And I think it's companies have decided that for us. Right. It makes me realize maybe these games that you're building shouldn't just be for children. It should be for grown adults who are making decisions about things in this field, huh? Well, I think that's also how I've started thinking about the podcast too, because I'm like, wow, there's a lot of people who don't know this stuff either. I was talking to my dad and I was showing him the trailer and he was like, yeah, I'm one of those people that doesn't know what I don't know. And I'm like, I didn't know what I didn't know either, right? That's why I'm here on this podcast. Well, so it sounds like the onus is on us to make this a positive future of ed tech and cyber safety is that we just not only need to focus on educating the kids, but educating ourselves too. For sure. Yeah, there's definitely an element of personal responsibility. And that's why like also in our booklet, it really focuses on using the term data care you know, like healthcare, you know, just like you take care of your health and your body, right? You take care of your data. And that's why I said earlier, it seems like a full-time job. I'm not doing data care just at work. Like I'm doing data care at home. I feel like sometimes that's more exhausting because there's more people to think about. <laughs> Even registering my kids, you know, up at the gym for something, I don't use their full name. You know what I mean? Like yeah. registering them for activities. I don't put all of that out there. Why do you need all that information? They're underage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It feels like constant vigilance, basically. Like for me, I didn't know, but my husband really cares about this. And so I don't even list our actual birthdays and exactly. not important. Exactly. Right. Small things like that. I agree. We've interviewed Laura Nelson, who's been a part of your foundation and we likened it to brushing your teeth. Yes. But what you're saying is it's almost like more than that. Cause you brush your teeth maybe twice, ideally three times a day. Yes. No, no, no. This stuff is ongoing. Well, like you said on your phone, you're getting text messages yeah. in the middle of the day from, you know, whoever trying to fish you. This is constantly happening. It's not part of a prescription. Like we are being, I don't want to say attacked, but we are in a way people, mm. they are attacking you with a text message. They are attacking you with an email. They're trying to get something from you. And that's like not happening in the morning and that night before breakfast or after dinner, whatever you brush your teeth. <laughs> It's just a constant stream. I, I hear you on that. Yeah. So, okay. This can sound very intimidating, but for those who want to just get started in data privacy education, whether it's for their kids or for themselves, 
where can they start? Like what's the first step that they could do? I have lots of first steps. Obviously, since I got into this because I listened to a podcast, I think (laughs) that our podcast would be a great way to educate yourself just the variety of topics. And we also have a challenge that goes along with each episode to really, you know, hone in on different concepts. Our cyber game could also be helpful to understanding like physically what it feels like to either attack someone or be attacked. But I think if you, you know, realize these are too easy for you, you need to move beyond that. You could take a class in computer security and penetration testing. I have definitely learned a lot by learning Linux and how easy it is for all of this to be done. And that's really helped me secure my own network. Another thing you could do is attend a cyber conference. There are really cheap ones actually that are available. They are called security B sides, it's letter B and sides, and they're really affordable and they have courses you can also take and people you can meet to learn more information about cybersecurity and securing data. Wow. That's so helpful. And I know you mentioned DEF CON, which I haven't had the pleasure of going to, but I've been told they have a scavenger hunt for kids there and I'm just dying to try it out. <laughs> I actually, I heard from a student guest that they got rid of a lot of that post COVID. Oh no. I know. Oh, that's too she bad. She feels Hopefully the same way. Well, she feels like girls who hack will get in there and run it. You know what I mean? Oh, and do stuff. There I'm like, go. <laughs> okay, you go girl. Like, Grassroots. That's how I go. Run the world. <laughs> well, I love that idea because I love games. And so that also makes it feel less intimidating. Like you said, your game too, where, okay, this is a safe space where I can just explore. Exactly. There's no stakes. We do the same thing with coding. Yeah. There's no stakes, right? Well, our coding game, we try to do the same thing. And I think with data privacy, we need those spaces too. This is also helpful. We'll put all of these resources in this episode description so you can explore. But Jen, thank you so much for sharing experience and being part of our podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Charlotte. This was so fun. Bye. Thanks for listening to EdTech Adventures. Please subscribe to catch more of our episodes and leave a review to support the show. For more resources and info, visit us at codecombat.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Chang. We'll see you on our next learning adventure.